I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our podcast edition of the program. I'm truly honored to welcome our guest today, Professor Florian Kramer. He holds a position as Professor of Vaccinology at the Department of Microbiology at Mount Sinai. Uh, Professor, you have been responsible for some of the most informed and illuminating Twitter threads about the vaccine making process. And I wanna thank you for informing the public in the way that you do. Oh, thank you very much. I think it's very important to get uh, high quality information out there to make sure that people understand what's going on with vaccines. You did a thread uh, maybe about a month ago, uh, longer, who knows, uh, tracking time during this pandemic era, uh, but it was the most comprehensive accounting of all of the vaccines in progress and whether they were employed for animals, for primates, for humans, and what stage of the trial. But one of the things that struck me that I wanted to ask you about from the outset is just most American-based companies, uh, Western or Europe, um, European um, producers of vaccines decided to go in the novel direction of the mRNA approach, whereas um, China and India have used the inactivated or attenuated approach. And I wanted to ask you why you think that not one um, American company or educational institution pursued the inactivated or attenuated approach. Well, that's a good question, and it's hard to say. And um, I was surprised, too, um, because I would have at least initially felt more comfortable uh, to have both very new but also classic and, and proven approaches uh, to move forward. But, of course, there are complications if you make these uh, what we call inactivated vaccines um, because you have to grow large quantities of the virus um, and then you chemically inactivate it and then you formulate the vaccine. Um, but the virus is actually a biosafety level three agent, um, which makes it very complicate, complicated to handle. And that might have been one of the issues. And of course, uh, if you also have new technologies um, like uh, RNA vaccines or vectored vaccines, that uh, might be easier to scale up. Um, you know, uh, I think uh, that that might have influenced the decision as well. But um, initially, I was worried about that. Now we see that uh, the RNA vaccines, for example, perform very well. You certainly have heard the news from Moderna and Pfizer. Um, but uh, yeah, initially, I would have felt more comfortable with, with having both types of vaccines. Professor, the way you explained it on Twitter was that the biosafety level um, and also the security in terms of uh, the folks being vaccinated and the risk, the potential greater risk uh, of employing that vaccine um, and giving people an inactivated or attenuated virus. But which labs in the United States would have been or are equipped to do that level of research? I think there are a lot of labs that can do the research. It's not so much about the labs that do the research. Um, it's more about producing the vaccine, right? Those are two different things. Um, the research can be done. We work here with live virus all the time and many labs in the US uh, can do that and are actually actively doing that. Um, but uh, it's getting tricky when you have to make uh, 
you know, b millions and millions of doses. Um, just researching with uh, researching live virus in the laboratory in an academic laboratory it's very different from producing vaccines which is more like an i mean not more like it's actually an industrial process right and so you have plants that uh, that are set up to do that if you don't have that at a certain biosafety le biosafety level then you just can't do it what production facilities do exist um, that would have been equipped to produce an attenuated or inactivated virus? Um, because you're saying that it's not the research labs, it's actually the production facilities that may be more limited. But which, which do exist in the United States, for instance, that, that could handle that if that is pursued down the line? I mean, I'm sure there's production facilities that could handle it. Um, they might have to be modified a little bit, but of course we are uh, producing um, many vaccines um, that are inactivated vaccines. You just have to think about hepatitis A vaccines. Uh, certain influenza vaccines um, are grown in cell culture, so there would be the sim a similar technology. So there would just need to be modification to these uh, to these uh, production facilities. So it could be done. And in fact, uh, one company in Europe has already started also to develop an inactivated vaccine, a more classic vaccine. Let's talk about efficacy, because what was your thought process prior to reviewing the initial third stage results from Moderna and Pfizer about the efficacy of mRNA versus the more traditional approach. What was your thought process prior to the, what has been revealed in the last week? And what is your thought process currently? Well, I was hoping that all of these vaccines independently of the technology would work. Uh, all of these vaccines are trying to achieve the same thing, which is basically to induce an immune response against the, the surface glycoprotein of the virus, what we call the spike protein. And um, that is the same for RNA vaccines, for recombinant protein vaccines, for vectored vaccines. They all do the same, basically. And so if they do that well, you would expect high efficacy. Now, I'm very happy to see that we are in the 90 plus percent efficacy range with the RNA vaccines. This is outstanding. It's comparable to other good uh, viral vaccines. Um, but to be honest, um, even a vaccine that has lower efficacy would be very useful. And you also have to be careful about um, the definitions of efficacy, right? So what we are really worried about are cases where cases of severe COVID and deaths, right? We're not really that worried about mild infections or even asymptomatic infections. And so the 90 plus percent that we now uh, see from Pfizer and Moderna are basically um, how well the vaccine protects you from getting a symptomatic infection. How well does it protect you from getting sick? Um, but even a vaccine that would prevent uh, severe infections to 50%, which would be low, would be a very useful tool to mitigate this pandemic. So I'm super happy about what we see right now. I do expect that other vaccines uh, that hopefully will report uh, efficacy soon as well will clock in at similar percentages. Um, but even if that's lower for some of those vaccines, they might still be very, very useful. 
With respect to the initial progress, I know that you are in the you are reviewing as soon as it becomes available, the research. Uh, I don't know if the Pfizer and Moderna research are available to you yet, um, but are you at all concerned that it's too early truly to tell based on the number of people enrolled and that the numbers that Pfizer and Moderna are reporting uh, might, might be overly optimistic? Uh, it could certainly be that if we wait longer, um, when, you know, the antibody titers might go down a little bit, that the efficacy goes down a little bit. Um, in general, I don't see that as a big problem. Um, you have to keep one thing in mind, and that's actually true for all vaccines. Efficacy is something that you measure in a clinical trial in a relatively healthy population under relatively defined conditions. Uh, we have a second measure that we use um, for how well the vaccine works once it's rolled out into the population, and that's effectiveness. And the effectiveness is always lower than the efficacy. That has to do with many factors that can be uh, issues with, in certain facilities, storing the vaccine at too high temperature, um, vaccinating people who have uh, an immune system that's relatively weak and doesn't respond well and so on and so forth. So basically you can think about the efficacy as something uh, that is measured under ideal conditions and the effectiveness, something that's measured under real world conditions. So the eff effectiveness is certainly going to be lower. But again, it's if it's a little bit lower, let's say in the 80s or 70s, that's still a very good vaccine. And you're basically saying, Professor, that effectiveness is something that will be measured once the vaccine is deployed to tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people. How many? Yeah, basically, once it's really um, used widely. Um, there are studies that look at that. Um, typically now when a vaccine is, uh, is licensed, um, the process of doing clinical studies doesn't stop there. Uh, there's usually also phase four studies. And uh, phase four studies basically follow what's happening after the vaccine hit the market. And so uh, there will be certainly studies that look at that, uh, that look at um, effectiveness, also look at how well the vaccine works after a year or two years, because that's obviously something that needs to be figured out, right? Uh, for many vaccines, after some period of time, you need a booster dose. And um, that might be the case for, for SARS coronavirus 2 vaccines as well. And so we need to figure out when that time is uh, in order to, to give these booster dose, doses at the, right, at the right moment in time. You want to give them uh, before the effectiveness or before the, the vaccine efficacy drops, uh, you know, to a too low um, percentage. Uh, so you want to vaccinate people at the right point in time again, if you need to. Speaking of what is efficacious or what is effective, what is the best strategy right now for multiple vaccines to be deployed in the United States and elsewhere around the world? I know that there's not one size that fits all in terms of the regiment of a single shot and a booster. And part of it will depend on the availability of how, much, how many vaccines are ready uh, to, to be um, given to a, a, 
population. Uh, but what are the next stages now, knowing that likely the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines will be within, the, within a month or so uh, widely available and starting to be employed? Well, now it's very important to have a plan. Uh, we need to know who we want to vaccinate. And um, there is actually a, a plan that was uh, put together by the National Academy of Sciences um, that calls for vaccination of healthcare workers and high-risk individuals uh, once the vaccine becomes available and other individuals later. Um, so we need to know who we want to vaccinate and then we need to have a plan in place and that's true for, for every state um, how do we roll out that vaccine? How do we distribute it? And you might have heard that both the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine need to be distributed frozen, which is a challenge. Uh, how do we distribute it? How do we go about vaccinating a lot of people? Um, are we doing mass vaccination campaigns? How, how do we roll that out, right? Are we tar targeting certain, uh, certain places specifically, for example, uh, nursing homes, um, and so on and so forth. So what we really need to have in order to have this operation go smoothly is a good plan of how to employ the vaccine. Is it at all problematic when you have two vaccines um, that may have different effects on um, the recipients? Uh, are you concerned at all about that? No, and I'm specifically not concerned about Pfizer and Moderna, these vaccines are extremely similar. They are not identical, but they're extremely similar. And so uh, I'm actually not sure it would make a difference if you get the first dose from Pfizer and the second one from Moderna. So I'm not worried about that at all. Um, but I think later on, of course, there, there, there might be uh, several different vaccines on the market that you know works through different mechanisms. Um, but I think initially all of, all of, of that will be governed by vaccine availability, right? Uh, which will really be the limiting factor initially. Um, but I don't think that um, people would, uh, would experience a bad immune response if they, let's say, get the first two vaccinations uh, from Pfizer and then maybe, you know, uh, months or years down the line when they need a booster dose, they might get a different vaccine. Um, and that might not be a problem at all. How do the uh, vaccines affect the work that you're doing on a daily basis? Not only have you been reporting for um, those on Twitter and elsewhere, the, the most salient developments, but you are in the lab every day or probably close to every day doing your own investigation. What is, how is that investigation related to uh, the deployment of, of vaccines going forward? Well, we do vaccine research in the laboratory. We look at, um, you know, how, how different vaccines are constructed, how, how we design them to make them better. We have one vaccine uh, in development um, that we hope will enter the clinical stage soon. Uh, that is together with my colleagues here, Peter Belize and Adolfo Garcia-Sastre. Um, but what I'm, what my main, uh, my main focus for SARS-CoV-2 is right now is to really understand uh, the immune response. How long-lasting is it? Um, how protective is it? And so we know now that if you get infected, even if it's a mild infection, you get a good amount of antibodies. 
And these antibodies are sticking around and they can neutralize the virus. They don't go away quickly. So we have a study where we look after, looked after five months, that's published data, but also seven months. And uh, these antibodies are persistent. Now, with immunity, it's not just about yes or no, it's about how much. And so we, we are doing a study now, we actually started that in April, to find out how much antibody you need to have to be protected. Um, because if you have too little, you might still get, get infected. And uh, we want to know how much you need to have in order to be completely protected. And that's a, a fairly large study that's ongoing right now. And it's very labor intensive because we bring people back every two weeks, every month to, to get uh, blood from them, to look how the antibodies develop. Um, we are uh, looking for reinfections in that group. We have another uh, control group that didn't doesn't have antibodies yet. So we're comparing how many individuals get infected in both groups. So that's a lot of work. And that's something that, uh, that I think is really important. It will help uh, to guide us in terms of vaccines, but it will also help to inform about, um, you know, how protected people who had the infection already are from a future infection. And I know that we see reinfections, but so far they have been very, very rare. And it's very likely, and we are trying to prove that, that previous infections, um, at least for, for quite some time, uh, protect you from reinfection. From your research, have you concluded, uh, and, and if so, with, with what level of certainty, that the mRNA vaccines are capable of producing uh, antibodies or long-lasting, relatively long-lasting immunity in the same fashion as the vaccination types that we discussed earlier, the attenuated or inactivated? Yes. So if you look at the immune responses that are induced, the mRNA vaccines are certainly um, very strong candidates. They induce um, high levels of neutralizing antibodies. In humans, if you give the vaccine to humans, it's usually only after the second dose, right? After the first dose, not much happens. But if you use similar vaccines in animal models, we already see protection and a lot of antibody after the first dose. So of course there are differences between mice and men, right? Um, but I'm fairly confident that we see uh, persistent and strong antibody responses with those, with those vaccines. And they are certainly comparable to other uh, vaccine candidates that are currently in phase three. Um, it's hard to cross compare, but um, some candidates that are based on recombinant protein, so where you manufacture that spike protein, the surface glycoprotein of the virus, then use that as vaccine, have shown higher neutralizing antibody titers, but again, the, um, the messenger RNA vaccines are not much worse. Ultimately, you can have uh, a dozen or even more vaccines being deployed in the United States and other societies. And even if you do, and folks are not social distancing and mask wearing, the, the mitigation will likely be unsuccessful, correct? No, not really. Um, I think if you get a large proportion of the population vaccinated, and specifically, if you get a, a, a large proportion of the high-risk uh, indivi individuals that are out there vaccinated, the situation will change a lot, right? Will go, and I think that's that's really important to to keep in mind. We, what we need to do right now is we need to reduce the risk of severe COVID 
and of uh, mortality from COVID. And I think we can use the vaccines to do that. Of course, you want to end up with a very high vaccination rate in the population. We'll see how that works out because, of course, there's a lot of people who are skeptical about vaccines who don't want to take them. And um, we need to, to be transparent and share information and make sure that people are convinced that they, they want to get the vaccine. But I'm 100% uh, I'm convinced that this will take care of the problem. I think, and this is speculation, but I'm, I'm trying to be positive here. I think that the, the pandemic will be under control by late spring. Um, that's what my personal opinion is. Uh, I hope I'm right. Um, but uh, that, that's how I feel about it. What we shouldn't, we shouldn't believe is that, you know, it's not going to be the case that uh, a vaccine is licensed and from one day to another, everything is fine again and everything is back to normal. It will take time, but it will get gradually better as from the point uh, when, vaccines have, when vaccines are licensed and vaccines can be used in the population. So do you think that your estimation um, or, or hopefulness that by next spring, uh, the spring of 2021, um, it will be more under control. That is largely a result of the vaccination interventions. Uh, but you think that even if there are communities that are still not heeding the scientific public health advisories about mask wearing, or social distancing. And we know that in the United States, there has been a rather incoherent response. There are states that have taken it more seriously since the initial impact. There are states that are basically operating as normal. But you think even amidst that kind of incoherence that um, by this spring with effective vaccines, there would be a major change in the uh, extent of, of the pandemic. Yes, but there's a difference. If we if we um, try to if we try to suppress the virus circulation until then by mask wearing, physical distancing, um, really sticking to the guidelines that that public health officials give us, uh, we'll end up at the point where uh, these vaccines make an impact and where the situation gets better with lower numbers of deaths uh, as compared to if we don't do that and. You see right now that, uh, I mean, we're basically a little bit behind Europe, but um, you have seen what happened in Europe. The cases were really skyrocketing and uh, lockdowns had to be put in place in order to get the cases down again. Europe is now turning around, uh, but the US is on a, a very steep upward trajectory. So we need to keep the virus circulation down. We need to break that upward trajectory. Um, you know, we don't want to lose lives while we are waiting for the vaccine. And it, it's not a long wait anymore. Um, we're, we're almost there. And uh, that would make it very bitter if we, if we lose another 100,000 uh, lives in the U.S. With respect to the vaccines that are being developed in Asia, specifically in China, also in Russia, uh, there is not the same amount of intellectual freedom. Um, and it's hard to authenticate what exactly is legitimate scientific intervention, but from your colleagues elsewhere in the world that are that have been responsible for producing experimental vaccines that are 
the inactivated or attenuated uh, outside of the major U.S. and international companies um, that that we talked about um, being involved in the mRNA vaccines. What have you heard? Um, in, in is any of it trustworthy about the Chinese uh, and Russian vaccination efforts? So. I would not, I would be careful to throw all of them into one bucket. Uh, um, the companies that uh, develop these vaccines in China, uh, for example, Sinovac and Sino, uh, Sinopharm, uh, they were very transparent from the get-go. Actually, uh, Sinovac was one of the first to publish their preclinical data, very thorough studies. Uh, I think it came out in Nature a um, long time ago, early spring. Um, they published their uh, their phase one, phase two studies. Uh, Kanzaino, for example, had a very early paper on phase one, another one on phase two. So uh, the the Chinese vaccine developers are very transparent, and they are actually doing a lot of international studies because there's very few cases in China. Um, and of course, they are also collaborating with the WHO because they want to uh, provide their vaccines uh, globally. And, you need to work with the WHO on that. So I actually don't have many doubts about that. And the same is true for, for India, right? India is, is uh, collaborating, uh, uh, Serum Institute of India is collaborating with uh, AstraZeneca to make the, uh, the Oxford vaccine available, but they have a lot of their own vaccine developments as well. And they're really good at that. And um, India is a major player for all kinds of vaccines for global production. Um, so they know what they're doing. Um, the Russian vaccine is a little bit of a different story. There, there was not that much information available. And uh, you might have heard that they, they licensed their vaccine based on phase two data on, in very few subjects. And so there are certainly questions about that. Um, but I wouldn't compare that to what uh, what's going on in China with vaccine development or outside of China with Chinese vaccines. Um, so those data will be made available. And uh, so far, it has been very, very transparent. So, you know, I, 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 wouldn't, I, I wouldn't discount these vaccines. Now, um, there are differences in terms of regulatory uh, agencies and guidelines and rules. So it would not be easy for a vaccine that has been manufactured in China and trialed in China, for example, to be uh, allowed on the US or the European market. That's a different story. That, that there are a lot of incompatibilities, while uh, Europe and the US uh, basically have very similar systems, and uh, it's very easy to license a vaccine in the US that has been licensed in Europe or vice versa. Um, yeah. And that, that seems to be part of the risk analysis and calculus we discussed um, in, in a different uh, criteria, um, perhaps. Um, Professor, I commend you for the research you're doing to help uh, during this public safety crisis. Um, and uh, you do share some hopeful words, both uh, on Twitter and um, on, on our podcast today. Uh, Florian Kramer, um, vaccinologist and a leading um, expert on the race for efficacious and effective vaccines. Thank you so much for your insight today. Thanks for having me.